today we're going to discuss who is Christ. Some of the questions we're going to answer is, how could Jesus be fully God and fully man at the same time? Why was the virgin birth so important? And could Jesus have sinned? And what are the offices of Christ and how can we live them out today? So we're going to start with who is Christ, but let me first pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to this earth as a baby to learn to grow in wisdom and knowledge and to one day die on the cross for our sins. I pray that today we would grow more in awe of Jesus because he is fully God and fully man, something we cannot comprehend, but was necessary for him to be able to die in our place for our sins. So speak to us, help us to have understanding today as we study more about who Jesus is. In your name we pray, amen. In the person of Jesus, God physically entered into our world. An infinite God came to live in a finite world. In Jesus, God and man became one person. Jesus will stay fully God and fully man for all of eternity. Right now, he is in heaven with a physical body. He has chosen that when God said that our bodies were very good, in the garden with creation of Adam and Eve, that Jesus took on that body, not just to experience life on earth, not just to die a death for us, but he has chosen to keep a human body for all of eternity. And so we want to answer the question today, how can Jesus be fully God and still be fully man? He was fully and completely human. And let's look at some evidences of scripture. First, we want to study the virgin birth and why that was so important. Matthew 1.18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that means before intimacy, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born of a human mother by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without an earthly human father. Matthew 1.18 said she was pregnant before they came together. Now, Joseph learned of this when an angel told him that Mary's baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1.20. And when Mary couldn't understand this miracle, an angel explained to her this, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, and listen to this, the Son of God. That is Luke 1.35. The angel was proclaiming to Mary that this baby was not just a human baby, but this baby was the Son of God. He didn't say Son of Man. 
Though what's interesting is we are going to learn that is the title Jesus used for himself. And we will learn more about that in a moment. Now, there are three important reasons to believe in the virgin birth. It shows that salvation ultimately must come from the Lord. The virgin birth reminds us that salvation can never come from our human effort, but must be the work of God himself. God was in this from the beginning. The virgin birth was made possible, the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Without the virgin birth, that could not happen. There is no other way Christ could have come to earth that would have united his humanity and his deity. This birth shows his full humanity because he was born by a human. And it also shows his full deity because the pregnancy was through the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth is also what made Christ human, but without sin. And this is because we all inherit guilt and corruption from our first father, Adam. The fact that Jesus did not have a human father means that the line of descent from Adam is partially interrupted. Remember, Luke 1.35 said that he will be called holy. And this is because the spirit and not man brought about the conception. He was not, though, think of this, the first sinless human, right? We know that Adam and Eve were also created sinless too. Now, you might ask, well, how did he not inherit sin from Mary? Well, this too was a work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit prevented the sin from Mary to touch Jesus in the womb. Ultimately, to understand Christ correctly, we must affirm the virgin birth. That is the beginning of understanding how he could be fully God and fully man. Well, we learn about Jesus that as a child, he grew and became strong. That's what Luke 2.40 says. And as he grew older, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He learned how to talk. He learned how to walk. He learned how to read and write. People around Jesus who grew up with him only saw him as a man. He was so ordinary that the people of Nazareth who knew him the best were amazed that he could teach with authority and miracles when he finally started his ministry. They only saw him as a carpenter's son. In fact, John tells us in chapter 7, verse 5, that not even his brothers believed in him. We want to think of Jesus, when we think of him in his humanity, Jesus had human weaknesses and limitations. He could be weary, hungry, and thirsty because of his physical body. He couldn't even carry his own cross because of the severe beating his body received. His human body actually ceased to live on the cross and ceased to function just like will happen to us when we die. He could feel different emotions like marveling, grief, sorrow, and being troubled. In fact, the word troubled in the Greek word is tarasso. 
Terrasso is used for people who are anxious or suddenly very surprised by danger. That's amazing that Jesus felt even that emotion. In his human nature, he did not know the day that he would return to earth, according to Mark 13, 32. He was exactly like us in every respect, but without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he knew no sin. Hebrews 7.26 says that he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 1 John 3.5 repeats this, in him there is no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in every respect like we are, but without sin. The fact that he faced temptation means that he had a genuine human nature that could be tempted. If he had called upon his divine powers to make a temptation easier, he would not have obeyed the Father fully as a man. Think about the temptations he's had. He, I am sure he saw a beautiful woman and had to choose not to lust in his heart. I am sure that when his friends abandoned him, he had to choose not to feel bitterness in his heart. He went through so many challenges to be tempted to externally sin or internally sin, and he never chose sin. He chose the harder path of obedience. But the question is, could Jesus have sinned? Well, the theological word for this is Jesus was impeccable. Impeccable means he was not even able to sin. So then we wonder, well, if Jesus wasn't able to sin, how could his temptations be real if he wasn't able to give in to them? Well, we need to rely on what we do know in scripture. And here's what we know. Fact number one, Jesus never did sin. Fact number two, the Bible says he was truly tempted, right? It said in every respect he had been tempted, but he was without sin. But here's what's interesting. There's another verse in James 1.13 that says, God cannot be tempted with evil. Huh? So what do we do with that? And then we also know that Jesus is God, right? So Jesus, who is God, cannot be tempted with evil, Yet, we know that he was tempted in every respect, but without sin, and he remained sinless. So this can start to seem like a contradiction. But as we grow to understand Jesus's human nature and divine nature, how they work together, we might understand more of the way in which he could be tempted in one sense, and yet in another sense, not be tempted. You see, Jesus's human nature never existed apart from union with his divine nature. If Jesus as a person had sinned involving both human and divine natures in sin, then that means God himself would have sinned and he would have ceased to be God. You see, if God's character, if his personhood is that he is holy, he is unable to act against his character. Therefore, we must conclude that it was not possible for Jesus to have sinned. 
The union of his human and divine natures in one person prevents it. So was he really tempted if he couldn't sin? Well, think of it this way. If you have successfully resisted temptation, you know that it is much harder to not give in to the temptation than to actually give in to it. So every temptation Jesus faced, he faced excruciatingly until the end, until he was triumphant. So even though the temptation was real, and even if he could not have given into it, it did not make the temptation easier to obey. Because Jesus refused to rely on his divine nature to make obedience easier for him. His human nature was tempted by evil, but not his divine nature. Scripture does not clearly explain how do these two natures unite when it comes to temptation. It is just one of those mysteries. But remember, Jesus did not have a sin nature inside of him. And so that definitely helped because really it was just temptation outside of him that he had to fight. So let's ask this question. Why was Jesus's full humanity necessary? Why did he have to be fully human? Honestly, some people don't think it is necessary and they didn't even see Jesus as a man. And that view is called docetism. And the problem with this is they're denying Jesus's true humanity. And when you deny Jesus's true humanity, you will be denying a foundation of the Christian faith. You see, he needed to be human to be our representative and obey for us where Adam had failed and disobeyed. He needed to be a substitute sacrifice. If he wasn't a man, he couldn't have died in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. Hebrews 2, 16 and 17 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be fully human in order to do this. He needed to be human also to be a mediator between humans and God. We needed someone to bring us back to God for reconciliation. Jesus could represent us to God and he could represent God to us. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? It didn't say the Lord, Christ Jesus, or the Savior, Christ Jesus. Here it is saying that the mediator had to be a man, but a perfect man for there to be a mediator between God and us. He also had to be a man to be our example of how we're to live this life. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Our goal is to be conformed into the image of his son. Romans 8, 29. It's interesting that also he needed to be human to reveal what our redeemed bodies will look like, our glorified bodies. He said to his disciples in Luke 24, 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, 
For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He rose in a new body that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. And this new body is imperishable. It's raised in glory. It's raised in power and it's raised a spiritual body. That means perfect communion with God. It doesn't mean just a spirit. It means a perfect, holy body. It goes on to say in verse 49 that just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, which is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, is the man of heaven, and our image will become like his. One final thing that I love about Jesus's humanity is that he was able to sympathize with us and our experiences because he understands the feelings we go through, the emotions, the trials, the challenges of this life. And this helps us to feel closer to him because he understands. So we know that Jesus was fully man, but was Jesus also fully God? Colossians 2.19 affirms, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 1.19 says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This shows us he was not partially God, half God. He is fully God. The term incarnation refers to Jesus as God in human flesh. He took on himself a human nature. Matthew 1.23 rightly calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When people would call Jesus Lord, in the New Testament, they were actually referring to the term Lord in the Old Testament, which is Kiros. And this was implying he was God. This term Kiros was used 6,814 times in the Old Testament. And this is why the angels declared at Jesus's birth in Luke 2:11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, the angels were acknowledging that Christ was God from the moment of his birth. The Lord God was born. What's interesting is Jesus is called Lord, affirming his deity over 400 times in the New Testament. But Jesus did not call himself the Son of God, Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And he says this 84 times in his earthly ministry. No one else was ever referred to this title. And Jesus was referring back to Daniel 7, when in a vision, Daniel saw one like the Son of Man, who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. Jesus was not proclaiming, oh, look, I'm just a man. 
when he called himself son of man, the people of the church, the people of the synagogues, the religious people should have seen and known this prophecy in Daniel that Jesus is saying, my dominion is an everlasting dominion. My kingdom is coming to earth. He is God. We also see that Jesus possesses attributes of the deity. For example, he demonstrated omnipotence, which is all power, when he stilled the storm at sea with just his words. When this happened, the disciples said in Matthew 8, 27, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Only the person who has authority over the waves can make them cease. They knew that Jesus was the creator of these waves and the waves submitted to his powerful voice. We also see his deity and that he asserts his eternity, that Jesus is eternal from eternity past to eternity future. Because in John 8, 58, he said this, before Abraham was, I am, I am. Jesus is the I am. Jesus also was omniscient. He knew everything. He could read people's thoughts, according to Mark 2.8. He could know what was in people's hearts, according to John 2.25. And the disciples later affirmed in John 16.30, Now we know that you, Jesus, know all things. Jesus knew all things only because of his deity. We know that Jesus was sovereign because he could forgive sins. And even the Pharisees said, but only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is God because he is worthy of worship. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is God, right? To the glory of God the Father. It is precisely because Jesus is God that the Father says in Hebrews 1.6, Let all of God's angels worship him. And they do. According to Revelation 5, 12, thousands of angels are around God's throne saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And Jesus was that lamb who was slain. And for him to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You know, one thing that really grieves me is the religion of the Jehovah Witness because they don't see Jesus as God. And because of that, they do not worship Jesus or sing songs to Jesus. And I remember some Jehovah Witness coming to my house and they were trying to convince me, oh, we are Christian, we believe in the same Jesus, we believe he died on the cross. And I said, but you don't worship him for it. You don't worship him. How can you call yourself a Christian and not worship the God who died for you? 
Well, the next question we want to ask is, did Jesus give up some of his divine attributes while on earth? Did he have to give up some of his godness in order to experience his full humanity? Well, some people who think he did give up some of his attributes of being God misinterpret Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Let's look at what it says. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here's where they get stuck. It says, But he emptied himself. But it didn't say he emptied himself of his godly attributes. It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He took on the role of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this misrepresentation is called the kenosis theory. And it holds that Christ gave up some of his divine attributes while he was on earth as a man. But what you need to understand is in church history, no one saw this verse in this way for the first 1,800 years of church history. This is not how the church understood the book of Philippians, nor how they saw Jesus when they said he was fully God and fully man. The text of Philippians 2 does not say he emptied himself of his power or divine attributes. The way Jesus emptied himself was to be in the form of a servant. Emptying was equivalent to humbling himself and taking on a lower status or position or a change of role. This did not change his attributes or his nature. In context, think of this. Paul was trying to persuade the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than themselves. To persuade them to be humble, he gave Christ as an example. He wanted them to imitate Christ's humility. He was not asking the Philippian Christians to give up or lay aside their attributes or their abilities or their personality. So Jesus was fully God, but he gave up some of the privilege and status that was his as when he was a God in heaven. And that's why he didn't count himself equal to God. Pretty much Jesus gave up glory when he was on earth. If Jesus ceased, even for a time, to have all the attributes of God, we would expect that to be more clearly explained in Scripture, more than just this one verse in this one epistle. And if the kenosis theory was true, then we could no longer affirm that Jesus was fully God. He would have been only partially God while he was here on earth. And if it denies the full deity of Christ, that would make him something less than God. He'd only be partially God while he was here on earth. So why was Jesus' deity necessary? Why couldn't he just be fully human? Why did he also have to be fully God? Well, only someone who is the infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all of those who would believe in him. Jonah 2.9 says, Salvation is from the Lord. No human could ever save man. Only God himself can. 
If Jesus isn't fully God, we have no salvation and ultimately no Christianity. So our next thought, we know Jesus is fully God and fully man, but was he still one person or was it like two people put together? The church really didn't know how to communicate this until the Chalcedonian definition in 451 AD. The definition was created to refute three inadequate views of Christ. The first one was Apollinarianism. Now, Apollinarianism teaches that Christ had a human body, but he didn't have a human mind or spirit. The mind and spirit was divine. This is a false view because then Jesus wouldn't have been fully human like we are. The second false view is called Nestorianism. Nestorianism is the doctrine that there were actually two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person. This is against how scripture teaches that Jesus is one person. There's nowhere that the two natures are talking to each other or struggling against each other. There's no dialogue between the two persons of Jesus, right? We see Jesus as a single person acting in wholeness and unity. The third incorrect view is monophysitianism. And monophysitianism is a view that Christ has only one nature. The human nature of Christ, they say, was absorbed into the divine nature so that both natures were changed into a third kind of nature. But by this view, Christ would not have been truly God or truly man. He would have been some other made up entity. Now, this Chalcedonian definition that was created in 451 was agreed upon by Catholics, Protestants, and the Orthodox churches. And I'm going to slowly read it to you because they wrote this to fight these three wrong views. So here is what it says. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, Teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial, which means having the same nature or substance with the Father, according to the Godhead, and consubstantial, meaning same substance, right? Same nature with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us. So this part was to fight Apollinarianism, the thought that Christ didn't have a human mind or soul. And they're saying he had a human mind and soul. Then they go on and say that he was without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these later days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged as, listen to this, two natures without confusion, without change, without division. This part is combating Nestorianism, where Christ was supposed to be seen as two persons in one body. It's not two persons, it's one person with two natures. One person with two natures. So they go on and say, without separation, 
the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, right? Fully man, fully God, and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. So this was to combat monophysitianism, the thought that Christ's human nature was lost in his divine nature. From this long definition, theologians held on to the point that Jesus is one substance. Substance is hypostasis in Greek. Therefore, the union of Christ's human nature and the union of his divine nature into one person is called the hypostatic union. It simply means the union of Christ's human and divine natures into one being. His divine and human natures are distinct and they have their own properties, but they're also eternally and inseparably united together into one person. He eternally brought together both the infinite and the finite. Jesus can have multiple things true about him since he is fully God and fully man. Think of this. Here's an example. We know Christ has returned to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Yet, he also says in Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he has returned to heaven, and yet he is still with us in his attribute of being omnipresent. In his human nature, he was 30 years old when he started his ministry. But yet, he also eternally existed when talking about his divine nature. He had never just begun. He has always existed. We know that Jesus was weak and tired, like on the boat when he was sleeping. But he's also omnipotent in his divine nature when he calmed the storm with his voice. He was tired, yet all-powerful. In his hum human nature, he died. In his divine nature, he raised himself from the dead. His divine nature did not die at his death because God cannot die. Being both man and God, a question maybe you have never thought of is, did he have one will or two wills? The answer is that Jesus actually had two distinct wills, the human nature will and the divine will. He had two centers of consciousness, human will and divine will, each having to coincide with his two natures. And this is how Jesus was able to learn things while he still knew all things. Jesus didn't know when he was going to return in his human nature, but in his divine nature, he knew when he was going to return to earth. And you can see this distinctly when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, because there he was struggling with the process of knowing he would need to go to the cross in order to be the sacrifice for our sins. And he said, Father, can you take this cup from me? He was asking for a different way. But he said, not my will, but your will be done. This is showing he had a human will, but he constantly had that human will submit to the God-honoring will of the Father. And it's important to state that having two wills does not require Jesus to be two different people. The idea of Jesus having only one will was rejected as heretical 
at a church council in Constantinople in 681 AD. So for many, many years, it has been defended that Jesus has two wills and not one will. Though Jesus being fully God and fully man, it might seem like a contradiction. Our minds can't fully comprehend it. It seems like a paradox, but we should not reject this teaching because we can't understand it because both are represented in scripture. We want to focus now, our last point is what are the offices of Christ and how did he represent them? Well, there were three major offices among the people of Israel in the Old Testament. There were the prophets, the priests, and the king. They were distinct and separate from each other. The prophet spoke God's words to the people. The priest offered sacrifices, prayers, and praises to God on behalf of the people. The king ruled over the people as God's representative. These three offices foreshadow Christ's work in different ways. As a prophet, Christ reveals God to us and speaks God's words to us. Interestingly, people never called Jesus a prophet in the New Testament. They did not grasp that he was the Messiah. In the epistles, Jesus was not called a prophet or the prophet. And this is because he was the one who the prophecies predicted in the Old Testament. Jesus also wasn't just a messenger of revelation. He was the source of revelation from God. So he was the ultimate fulfiller of the prophecies. As a priest, he both offers a sacrifice to God on our behalf and is himself the sacrifice that's offered. This is seen in the book of Hebrews, chapter 926. It says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As our high priest, he leads us in the presence of God. We no longer need a temple or priest to go between us and God. The veil of the temple that hid the Holy of Holies where God's presence resided, it was torn apart when Jesus died. From the top to the bottom, God did this, indicating free access to God through Jesus. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says, since we have the confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. As a priest, Jesus right now is making intercession for us. That is Romans 8:34. He is praying for us faithfully. Not in a generic way, but he's actually making specific requests and petitions about us. I mean, it should be consoling to think that Christ prays for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life. Jesus is also king. He rules over the church's king and the entire universe's king. Jesus was born to be king of the Jews in Matthew 2.22. But he refused to become an earthly king that displayed military and political power. He said in John 18.36, My kingdom is not from this world. He is such a king that Ephesians 1.20 says that God raised him up and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, 
not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he puts all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. What's interesting is these three roles we are to live out as well if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus. We have a prophetic role in proclaiming the gospel to the world whenever we speak truthfully about God. We are fulfilling a prophetic function. This doesn't mean we're supposed to call ourselves prophets today. We are not predicting new things that God says to us or we think are happening in the future. This was only for the Old Testament. But we are to fulfill being a prophet by sharing the gospel with people. We're also priests because Peter calls us a royal priesthood in 1 Peter 2.9. We are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices. Hebrews also sees us as priests who can enter the Holy of Holies. Paul says in Romans 12.1, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. We are to be priests. And then finally, we are to share partially in the kingly reign of Christ since we've been raised to sit with him in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians 2.6. We share in some of his authority over the spiritual realm. We can cast out demons. We can heal. We can see miracles happen. We can see God work through us in miraculous ways. So let us consider how we can more rightly live out these three roles of prophet, priest, and king. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you were fully man and fully God, uncompromising, one person, two natures, two wills, that yet perfectly are union together for all of eternity, so that you could be the only person that could die for our sins, the only one that could be our mediator, the only one that could lead us to God the Father. Thank you, Jesus. May we embrace these truths to fall more in love with you and to be more enamored of who you are. And would you please help us to live out our roles as prophet, priest, and king. May we be uninhibited in sharing Jesus, you, Jesus, with others. May we continue to surrender our bodies, our hearts, our minds to you as a spiritual act of worship. And we, may we live out our kingly role by having your kingdom come to earth now, Lord, as we care about protecting others and seeing other people being rebuilt, restored, and renewed through your spirit. In your name we pray. Amen.